Welcome to the Daniel Cleland Podcast. Plant medicine. Plant medicine. Entrepreneurship. Expat living. The Daniel Cleland Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, my friends, welcome to the second of two solo casts that I will be doing for the Daniel Cleland podcast. Tonight, I will be following up from where I left off in the first solo cast entitled Before Ayahuasca, and we'll be moving into the world I experienced after Ayahuasca in this podcast, in the solo cast. I will cover the experience of being at uh, total rock bottom physically, emo- uh, em- emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. Well, I spent 40 days in the hospital with a broken up body in Australia and the decision to eventually track down ayahuasca and commit to the process. The journey to get to ayahuasca, which had a significant false start in Peru. And, of course, the trajectory beyond that. Um, I'll cover the first ayahuasca experience I had, which was quite powerful and and what I would consider an extreme inflection point in my life. And then I will go into the journey of how my interest in walking the path of ayahuasca intersected with my previous experience in South America and Latin America and tourism. And that combined with my emergent interest in entrepreneurship, resulting in my first company, which I started in 2011 and has become where we are right now at Soltara in Costa Rica, this this healing center in Costa Rica where we work with Shipibo healers uh, on this beautiful beachfront haven in a very safe and, and uh, enjoyable country, accessible country. So, yes, if you'd like to join me, I invite you to cozy up and... Pour yourself a glass of tea or a cup of tea or a glass of vino. I personally will be enjoying a little glass of vino tinto while I share this journey with you. So, um, yes, please, please feel free to get comfortable while we go deep on a couple of these intimate topics to me. So in the previous solo cast that I did before ayahuasca, we left off at a point wherein I had just made an attempt at climbing a cliff in the middle of Brisbane in the middle of the night while I was intoxicated. And I fell. I fell, the doctors told me, about 20 meters uh, off this cliff so that for those of you who know feet instead of meters, that is about uh, 40 feet, I believe. No, wait, two, 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 60 feet. But yeah, it's like four or five stories, something like that. So it was a long fall. It was a long fall. And I, I landed on my left leg 
apparently, because that's where the majority of the injury happened. I landed on my left leg. The impact hit my left leg. My femur shattered in three places. So um, it was pretty messy. The bone popped out of my leg. So these kind of sharp pieces of bone went out, cut through my muscle, and sliced open the skin. I've got a scar that's like 10 inches long. It used to look like a shark bite for a few years because I had this big kind of semicircular row of stitches on my leg. And um, yeah, so that was pretty gruesome. My leg was like a piece of spaghetti. And uh, in addition to that, the impact on the left side of my body uh, split my pelvis in half. So um, the left side of my pelvis, they called this a vertical shear fracture. And if you can imagine the pelvis is kind of these two halves that are put together. Uh, the, the left leg, the, the impact from the left leg split one up and uh, it went deep into my diaphragm this half of my pelvis. So I was in pretty rough shape. And, uh, you know, it was dark. I was down there by myself at this park. And fortunately for me, there were some other people there, some, some, some people down there. It was a, like, I think, a, I don't know, a Friday night or something like that. And um, so I began to, to call out for help. I recall uh, struggling to speak because I had this, you know, damage to my pelvis and, uh, and uh, diaphragm. But fortunately, some people came over and looked at me and they said, holy fuck, man, look at your leg. I'm like, yeah, I know. Could you please call me an ambulance? So they called me an ambulance. I couldn't feel anything at that time. I couldn't. I mean, my, there was just, it was all this nerve damage. I was probably in shock. And um, so the ambulance comes. They inject me with something. I don't know what it was, but it made me laugh hysterically. I mean, I was having a great time. I remember going to the emergency room. They cut my, my clothes off. They cut my pants off with scissors. My pants were soaked in blood. They... Uh, yeah, they put me in a bed. They put me immediately in a morphine drip. So I had a little button that I could just push to get another shot of morphine. And um, they screwed some big metal apparatus into my bones. So laying in this trauma ward with these big rods, like a, some, just basically these rods that are holding my legs into place. Uh, my bones into place. So anyways, <clears throat> I, I sat there for a week because it takes time to schedule surgery. So for a week, I sat in this bed in the emergency uh, room with this big metal apparatus holding me together. And, you know, it was about as humiliating as it could get. Uh, I, I couldn't shit myself I you know I had to have people help me shit and you know urinate and 
uh, just constantly clicking this morphine button for more more morphine because it was just uh, it was a disaster. And um, so about a week into that, uh, then they they were able to operate on me. So they took me into the room, put me under, and they stuck a rod between inside my femur. So uh, a titanium rod, which I still have to this day, that goes from my knee to my my hip, and it was screwed in in the two places, holding the femur in place, sewed up my leg, sewed up the muscles and and the skin, and um, and then put a plate across the front of my pelvis with four screws in, in there as well, holding the two pieces of the pelvis together. And then I spent another, uh, you know, five weeks in the hospital uh, in, in the trauma ward. So for all you bike riders out there, motorcyclists, just to, just to justify the fear my mother always had about me getting a motorcycle, the majority of the guys who came into that ward where I was spent, where I spent five weeks were coming in from motorcycle accidents. So going to ride a motorbike, take it easy, you know, take it easy. And one of the guys in there who came in was, you know, was a preacher. So, you know, just take it easy when you're on motorbikes. Anyways, I spent five weeks in there. Uh, after a few weeks, they switched me off the morphine drip and uh, put me on to OxyContins. Oxycontins, paracetamol, and ibuprofen, and then something else for nerve damage, because I had a lot of nerve damage as well. Um, that included uh, not being able to feel my uh, my genitals, and they were unable to confirm to me if I would ever get feeling back there again. And if it did come back, it could take up to 18 months is what they told me. So, you know, physically, really, aside from death or paralyzation or brain damage uh, or losing the actual leg, uh, you know, it couldn't have been much worse. Um, I mean, knock on wood, I'm sure it could have been worse, but it was pretty bad. So I spent this time in the hospital, five weeks. After a few weeks, I started to kind of, you know, mm, gain some coherence, I guess. And, um, you know, I started to uh, look at my computer and I, I had just started a new job um, selling solar panels which, uh, as I explained in the previous episode, was not at all what I was interested in doing or what I had planned to do when I went to Australia. I planned to further my education. That was the whole purpose of what... Of, that, was, that was my main focus at that point in my life. So actually going to Australia and getting totally off track and being stuck in just another sales job and another sales job and another sales job, 
I felt like I was really wasting my time. And I felt like I was just not actualized at all. Like I was meant to do something significant with my life. And here I was just, you know, working kind of a run-of-the-mill sales job and uh, and not really making good money and not being able to further my education. And, you know, and I was, uh, I believe I was 20. I had just turned 29 that year. It was 2009. Um, or sorry, I just turned 28, I guess it was. But still getting up there, you know, getting closer to 30, I started to feel a lot of that pressure that we probably all feel as we get older, you know, especially men, um, you know, you feel that you're kind of competing in terms of resources with other guys, you know, there's guys who have their shit together, who have the flashy cars and, you know, just um, there's always that element of competition. And I was just not in a, I was not a competitor at that point at all. I was like, you know, no money, no career, no car. Um, physical body is, is, is wrecked, really no direction. And, um, yeah, just not feeling very good about myself, you know, and, and that was becoming evident that had become evident in many, uh, many failures in relationships in the, in the years prior. Um, a lot of, you know, insecurity that I was carrying that would just, that would boil over in my interactions with women. And, you know, that was just very frustrating. So I was just, I was very frustrated with everything. But there I was in, in my hospital bed and, you know, I'm starting to become a little bit more coherent um, once I got off the morphine drip and, and everything like that. And, you know, it's still, I still couldn't wipe my own ass for, for about a month. But, uh, you know, let me tell you, that is, you never want to be in that situation when you have to get people to wipe your ass for you. That's not, that's not where you want to be ever in life. Um, but I started uh, catching up on some of the sales calls that I had made before I fell. So, you know, that kind of kept me a little bit busy in the hospital. I, uh, I followed up. I made a few sales. I, you know made a bit of money for the company. So the, so the boss thought I was, I was, uh, you know, pretty, pretty solid, uh, sales guy. Um, so he was very supportive and he, he kept me working. You know, I was actually a little bit afraid that I would lose that job and I wouldn't have any job and I'd be stuck in the hospital with no job, but, um, he kept me on, on the payroll and, and I kept kind of following up with people during the, during the time I was in the hospital. But, one thing I, I just couldn't escape was this overhanging just sense of being totally lost and just overcome with regret and, and self-contempt for the big stupid mistake I'd made. You know, I was, before coming to Australia, I was on track. I was like, I, I had fought my way through year one of upgrading some high school courses and like taking all these kind of uh, these university level courses at a college in BC. And, and, and I did this, you know, I was really passionate. I put a lot of effort in and I just, I wanted to get to university. 
Um, and so I was really mad at myself for taking that stupid field trip to Australia and winding up in the hospital with, you know, basically wasting a whole year uh, of my life and coming back just, just busted and just worse off than I, I had ever been. Um, and I started to think that maybe there was something deeper going on there. Like there was something going on in my mind that, that was contaminating my life. That was resulting in all these dumb decisions and, and the self-sabotage and, you know, I, I had, I had become aware of ayahuasca in, in 2008 when I was uh, guiding a group uh, down the Amazon River in Brazil on a riverboat. I was reading this book called 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl by Daniel Pinchback. And back in those days, um, I really bought into the Mayan calendar theory that in 2012, December 21st, 2012, something really big was going to happen. So that's kind of why I lived a little bit more frivolously back in those days, taking irresponsible decisions under a normal circumstance. But when considering the world's going to end in 2012, I was like, fuck it, I'm going to do what I want. So I never really planned any further than six months ahead, which led me to do a lot of things that I wanted to do in the moment, but might not have been the most strategically sound decisions. However, in the end, it turns out perhaps they were, or perhaps I was just able to manipulate them to to get to where I am right now. But uh, regardless, you know, they say everything happens for a reason. And I don't know about that. It certainly didn't feel like it back then. But anyways, I was aware of ayahuasca. I was aware of the powerful nature of ayahuasca. And while I was in this terrible spot in the hospital, I started to take it seriously. I started to seriously consider you know, maybe, maybe I do need some help. Maybe I do need to, you know, dive deep and see what's going on inside of me that is, that is setting me up for failure and all these things and, and, and causing me to make stupid decisions and hurt myself and, and self-sabotage. So um, I decided to do a little research and I had lots of time. I was in the hospital. And I found a retreat that uh, Daniel Pinchback's organization, uh, Reality Sandwich, I think they've disintegrated it by now. You don't hear much about Daniel Pinchback anymore. But back then, uh, in 2009, you know, 10, it, this happened in late 2009, November 27th, I think, 2009 is the night I fell. So this is at the end of 2009. And um, going into 2010, and this Reality Sandwich website was really popular. The Chris Killam was always doing articles on there. They talked a lot about Pablo Amaringo and Ricardo Amaringo, and they were working with this place called Chimbre in Puerto Maldonado with a guy named Rob Velez, and... You know, they kind of had this whole culture built around that. Dennis McKenna was always featured on this website. 
So I found a retreat that they were they were hosting uh, that was taking place in, I believe, uh, April of 2010. So five months after I fell. And um, I thought, fuck, I need to do this. You know, I need to do this. Otherwise, I don't know where I'm going to end up. The next one might kill me. So I, I got better, you know, mostly. I, I, I finished my time in the hospital, and I spent some time in a wheelchair. My mother came over from Canada and spent six weeks with me, which was really nice, you know, to hang out with my mom. We never hung out like that since, and we'd never hung out like that, you know, maybe since I was a kid, but... Um, she helped me out, you know, she took care of me and, um, and that was, uh, that was really cool. And after I go to the wheelchair, I was on crutches for a few months and, uh, yeah, I mean, they, uh, they gave me Oxycontins to once I got to the hospital. So I had these ongoing prescriptions of Oxycontins coming out of the hospital, which, I really grew to enjoy, as many people do, as we've seen with the uh, the uh, alarming statistics in the United States and elsewhere in the world regarding addiction to opiates. But uh, yeah, I I continued to recover and and heal and work this solar panel sales job. Did that until you know April or something like that. So I, I had to first I had deferred my school program from the previous September to January, and then of course the accident happened and I had no money, so I had to defer the school program from January to April. And then as time went on, as the months went into Q1 of of twenty of two thousand ten, it just became a very clear to me that, you know, I, the, the, I was just not going to end up going to school in Australia. That that was off the table. And so I had to start over again. I had to go back to Canada and figure out what the fuck I was going to do with my life. So um, I, I I got a trip home. I, I sadly quit the solar panel job it was a you know it was these were really nice people and I disappointed them by leaving but I had to do it and my dog uh, my dog Molly was um, was not doing so well she's uh, she was 17 years old and I had this dog since I think I was in about grade six and I you know I asked my dad for years can we get a dog can we get a dog can we get a dog he always said no 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 and then finally we got a dog, but by that point I had already researched all the breeds that I liked and like their characteristics and everything, like how to train them and stuff like that. So I think when I was in grade six or grade eight, uh, I found this this dog, you know, and, and, and I wanted like either an Australian Shepherd or a Border Collie. And I found these mix, Australian Shepherd, Border Collie puppies. And I get there and there's only one left and that was Molly and, you know, she... I lived beside a forest uh, in Canada there where, where I grew up and spent a lot of time, like, you know, through all through high school. That was like my, my special refuge. I'd go there and, and walk around in the forest with my dog and, 
even when I went to college, you know, I just, I'd always come home for the weekend. The first thing I do is grab Molly and go down in the, in the bush and, and, and go for a walk and, you know, kind of track deer and stuff like that, hang out by the river. And so I had a really uh, strong and close relationship with my dog. Although, of course, when I went traveling, I wasn't going home very often. So anyways, I got a letter from my dad saying that, that she was not doing so good. Uh, obviously, she's 17, right? But uh, yeah, everything considered, I just realized that it was time to pack in my life in Australia. It was not going anywhere and I needed to start over. So I quit my sales job. I go and buy a flight back to Canada, of course, from Brisbane to Toronto, if you're cutting from west to east, you have to cross the United States. So there was a direct flight from Brisbane to Los Angeles, and then I had a direct flight from Los Angeles to Toronto. But I planned it so that when I was, when I stopped in LA, I would, you know, just grab a flight and detour down to Peru and go to this retreat, this retreat that was being put on by Reality Sandwich, which actually featured Dennis McKenna. Um, so this retreat was at Chimbre, this place that was run by Rob Velez and this, this shaman who's now in jail called Mancoluto. Um, I went down to Peru. Of course, I didn't have a lot of cash flow. Like I was, I was fairly broke at that point. But I fly down to Peru, get to Lima, and my plan was to just go to this place. I didn't have any money um, to pay for it. And I hadn't even communicated with them to book it. I just, you know, I was being naive, thinking that everybody who works in the ayahuasca field is like a generous kind of angel that is just going to let you come into their place for free and do all this work on you without charging you nickel. Um, you know, I just, for some reason, expected to just show up at their door and, and have them let me in. So, uh, so I get to Lima. I, 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 I cut over from Brisbane to LA. I fly from LA down to Lima. I get to Lima. I get a hostel. I stay in the hostel. And uh, then I get a bus. And if you know anything about Peru, Puerto Maldonado is in the Amazon, but it's kind of in the lower Amazon. And um, to get there, you have to go over the Andes. So Lima's on the coast. And then if you're going by road, you go up the mountains on a bus, which takes about 24 hours. And then you go down the mountains on a bus to Puerto Maldonado, which takes like, I don't know, another 24 hours or something. So it's a long trip. And um, I could have flown. If you want to fly, it takes about two hours. But I was, I was low on funds. So I took this bus. And I'm at the bus stop. And I see this dude smoking some tobacco. He's got like native American tattoos on his arms, on his forearms. And uh, I don't know, like kind of this long hair, a beard, kind of a plaid like lumberjack jacket on. Uh, and 
for some reason, I just thought he looked Canadian. So I walked up and I'm like, hey, dude, you from Canada? And he's like, yeah, yeah, what's going on? So we ended up having a good chat, rode on the bus together, became friends. He had some peyote with him. And um, we ended up getting up to Lima. He actually brought some peyote down from the United States. But we get up to Lima, and he had just finished an ayahuasca retreat. So, um, yeah, he, he kind of informed me a little bit about the medicine, and, and he, he was working with Shipibo healers. So we get up to Lima, and uh, then he, he goes his way, and I go my way. Get up to Lima, and I get a hostel. The next day, it is... Australia, New Zealand Army Corps Day, I find out, because I go to this kind of party hostel to check it out, and I end up linking up with a whole bunch of Aussies and New Zealanders who are there partying and drinking since 11 in the morning. And, of course, I just come from Australia, so I felt like this kind of kinship with them. So I get there, start hanging out with them, and they're playing this drinking game like like Flip Cup or something, something along those lines. End up hanging out with them all day, partying it up, getting a little bit wasted, and going out to a disco, teca, and all that. Come back to my hostel. I think it was about 2 or 3 in the morning. And I'm standing out in front of the hostel having a smoke before I go in. Car pulls up beside me. Guy jumps out from the front seat, sticks a machete right in my face. Like, I'm literally just looking at the blade of a machete. Other guys from the car jump out, come over, clean out my pockets, take everything, and then get back in the car and drive away. It was just like a whirlwind. It was like, boom. And everything I had was gone. So I'm standing there in the street like, fuck, did that just actually happen? I mean, they took everything, my wallet, bank card, cell phone, um everything. So luckily not my passport and stuff like that. That was in my bag. But regardless, it took all my cash and uh, cell phone and and stuff like that. So anywho, I uh, go back in to the hostel and go to sleep and I wake up the next morning and I like realize that I'd just been robbed. And the only thing they left was this, my chapstick and 10 soles, which I had like rolled up in my pocket, uh, my back pocket or something. So 10 soles, if you're not aware of the currency conversion, is like about $3, $3-$4 in American dollars. Soles is the Peruvian currency. So anyways, um, I wake up, hungover, realize I just got robbed, trying to figure out what my next move was because I had just gotten as far up as Cusco. I hadn't actually gotten to Puerto Maldonado. So I'm up in the town of Cusco at this point. I go to the market to get some cheap food, the San Pedro market. I go there. They have all these like stalls lined up where the local vendors sell food, sell locally prepared food right there in the market. And I went to a place that was selling fish soup. So I got some fish soup for cheap, you know, I'm trying not to spend money because all I have is like three bucks. So I eat this fish soup and I go back to my hostel and then like two hours later, 
explosive vomiting, explosive diarrhea. I had gotten food poisoning from this fish soup. So I spent the next like three days locked in my room at the hostel in bed, freezing at night, waking up with fevers, vomiting, um, vomiting, diarrhea, the whole bit. On top of all the other stuff that had just happened in Australia, and on top of all this, I also ran out of OxyContin before leaving Australia. So I was still kind of suffering a little bit of the withdrawal there. And... um yeah, then I realized that my trip to Peru had probably fallen through as well. That I I couldn't act, I couldn't make it as far to down to this retreat. I I just I just couldn't. I had I had no way to make it happen. Uh, in fact, the only out that I had was to call home, and I hated doing that because, you know. I was in my late 20s, and anytime I had to do that, I got this speech about how I should get my shit together, how I should get a job, how I should settle down, how I should stop doing these stupid adventures around the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, but I had no choice at that point. And so I called home, and I said, Dad, I need, to, I need a flight home, man. I need to get home. I got no choice. And of course, I got the speech. You need to get your shit together. I'm sick and tired of paying for your fuck ups, blah, 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 blah. Justified stuff, right? So my dad buys me a flight home. I have a schedule a flight for the next day. And just as I'm about to, you know, pack up my stuff and get ready to go the next morning, this dude who I met on the bus ride from Lima to Cusco calls me up, calls up the hostel looking for me. And uh, I, I had almost totally forgot about him because I had been through this whole, you know, I got robbed and then spent a few days with food poisoning and then, you know, was just trying to get myself home after that. He calls me up. He's like, yeah, man, um, I just got out of the hospital. Crazy story. But anyways, I've got that peyote if you want to go and, and take some peyote in the mountains today so I'm like okay sure let's do that why not so then I spent my last day with this dude and uh his name was Bayou by the way Bayou which is a North North American Indian name that was given to him by elders in his uh, group in uh, New Mexico so we go out in the mountains take this peyote it's the first time I tried peyote or mescaline of any kind and get some horses and we're just you know like cruising around in the mountains up checking out the temple de la luna and these these different inca ruins up in the mountains beautiful sunny day cusco's 300 and something uh three sorry three thousand meters above sea level i think something along those lines three thousand three hundred meters above sea level so it's uh it's pretty high it's definitely it's got some altitude and the sun's really strong up there. So we spend this whole day cruising around these horses, jamming in the mountains. But because it's so high, it's kind of cold. So you don't really feel the sun. And 
I ended up getting the worst sunburn I've ever had in my life on my face, my ears, my face, my lips. It was blistered. It was bad. <laughs> it's peeled off. My face looked like a leather baseball mitt when I got back to Canada. So, so I go out and I, and I do this trip with this guy and, you know, um, he, he obviously saw that I was struggling a bit. So he gave me, he gave me a little tapestry, a little Shipibo tapestry about the size of a hand cloth that was woven up. And I've seen many of those by now as have many of you probably. And, um, he said, brother, I hope, I hope this helps you find the medicine someday because I had failed at finding the medicine that first time I went to Peru. And the next day I left and I go home. I arrived to Canada after having been gone for a year. I come back, I'm emaciated, I'm thin, I'd lost weight. I've got scars on my body. My face is all sunburned, looks like a leather baseball mitt. I'm broke. I've got no direction in life. I've got nothing. I've got nowhere to go except for my basement's, my parents' basement. Nowhere to go except for my parents' basement. So that's what I did. I spent that whole summer. I got home sometime in April or May of that year and spent that whole year um, living in, in my parents' house and working for my dad. He had just started up a solar company in Canada. So my dad and Paul, uh, my uncle, and my cousin Matt started up this solar company in Canada in my hometown of Walkerton, Ontario. So I started working with them, and oddly enough, at the same time, my, one of my sisters, I've got three sisters, younger sisters, uh, one of them had just finished going through a breakup, so she was at home, and I think there was some other stuff going on in their lives, so, and, and one of their friends who was kind of like a pseudo-sister to me, so we had this kind of joke that we were all in life recovery at my parents' house that summer, so we all spent the summer together, recovering our, our, our lives. And I ended up finding another path during that summer. You know, I, I, I was primarily interested in furthering my education before all of this shit happened because I wanted to make a difference, particularly for nature, because I was always really well connected with nature. As I explained, I used to always take my dog in the bush. It was like my favorite thing to do. And we'd always go camping and I'd always read these adventure books like Call of the Wild and White Fang. And I always wanted to, I just, I, I, it, it always hurt me to see nature suffering so much. And after seeing all these places in South America that were contaminated and, and damaged, I wanted to do something to help nature. So the, the, the university program I wanted to take was called Natural Resources Conservation, but I couldn't get into that program because my marks were so terrible from college and high school. So that's why I did that one year of all these upgrade programs to, to get my averages back up. Um, but of course, all that went off track when I went to Australia and, and, and fucked my life up. So then, you know, I, I was there in Walkerton, trying to find the path. I knew that I didn't want to just stay in Walkerton uh, working, 
you know, selling solar panels. Like nothing wrong with that. It's just not what my dream was. And, you know, God bless my dad because he was just trying to help me out. He wanted to lend me money to invest in that company and stuff, but I, was, I didn't want to be in Walkerton. Um, I didn't want to spend my 30s in Walkerton. And, you know, I just, I just knew I was bound for something different. So um, I found this job called Fisheries Observer, working for a marine research company called Archipelago Marine Research out in Victoria, British Columbia. And for me, that was a little bit of an adventure as well. And the, the thing about this job was that all they asked for was one year of post-secondary education, one year of university-level education. So I was able to utilize all those courses that I took. You know, I had taken environmental issues and geography and Spanish and English and uh, sociology in uh, that one year I did of university courses. And so I was able to use that along with, you know, all this kind of adventure experience I had because this job as a fisheries observer involved going out to sleep on fishing boats for weeks on end, working in the ocean, right? It was kind of like an adventure job and a lifestyle job. You'd go out and ride along with these commercial fishing vessels, just like that reality TV show, Deadliest Catch, and, and so it required a certain kind of availability to that experience. So I was able to get the job due to those two factors. I had a pretty decent average with the university courses, plus I had all this experience traveling around, living in rough conditions, backpacking, sleeping in hostels, getting in all kinds of trouble, etc. Uh, so in August of that year, I was invited to go train with them in Victoria, British Columbia. So I, I fly out to Victoria. I say goodbye to my sisters and my, my, my dad and, and everybody, my mom. And I fly out to Victoria to start this training program for this job. And... As I'm in the training program, I think it was two weeks long, this, this gentleman, Bayou, who I met in Peru, the medicine guy, he sends me an email and he says, yo, dude, we're, uh, we're having a ceremony down in, um, down in New Mexico if you want to come down. It was a weekend event, and they were having three ceremonies, private, incognito, clandestine. So, yeah, I was in this training program, and I, and I, I really wanted to go. You know, I really resonated with Bayou, and I also was still under the mindset that I really wanted to experience this, this medicine and, and, and find my path. And there, I was also experiencing a lot of uncertainty at that time of, like, is that I was just in the training program and it seemed like a really cool job, but I was still kind of feeling some uncertainty and it was, it was a little bit nerve wracking. Like I was kind of scared of going out and, you know, surfing the waves in the middle of the ocean with these rough around the edges, fishermen and, you know, crab fishers and, um, and bottom draggers and, you know, these big boats and I'll get into more of that later, but so I 
during the training program on one weekend, I said, I, I told them that I had a wedding to go to in New Mexico. So um, they gave me the time off of the training, just a couple of days. And I organized it so I could, I could get it done in a couple of days. I think the ceremony was on a Saturday night. So I left after the training program on the Thursday night on a ferry from Victoria to Seattle. I get to Seattle on the ferry. I stay in Seattle a night. The next day, I fly to Albuquerque, New Mexico. Get to Albuquerque, stay in Albuquerque, rent a car, and um, went out in Albuquerque that night, checked out the city, really cool, had some fun. And um, the next day, got up and drove five hours through the mountains to get to this ceremony place. And yeah, I get to the ceremony place an hour or two before the ceremony's meant to start. They give me some preparatory talks and I, I, I get calm and collected and, and look up at the sky and, and tell the universe I'm ready. I'm ready to go for this. You know, I thought I had done enough psychedelics in my life that this was going to be a bit of a cakewalk. So, but it still made me a little bit nervous. And, um, yeah, I said, uh, let's rock and roll. And then we, we went into the ceremony. So I arrive to the ceremony, and it was a beautiful sunset out on the range of New Mexico. I was very impressed by the scenery. It was a very magical, very impressive and powerful place. You could see off into the distance and all these kind of rolling mountain ranges with orange rock and the sun was going down and it was it was beautiful. We started the ceremony before the sun went down. It was with a American guy who had trained to serve medicine. The medicine was Peruvian. It was very strong, the black, the real black concentrated stuff that that you see a lot in the Shipibo ceremonies. But this man did not speak Shipibo. He, he, he spoke English and Spanish, so he would sing in Spanish. And uh, the, the participants in the ceremony also, some of them played instruments as well. But um, ceremony began. He served medicine. It was in a private person's home um, in kind of a garage, a bunkie on the second floor. So there was... You could see around and around uh, the landscape. Long story short, I took my first dose and waited a couple of hours and not a lot of things were happening. Happening, People around me I could see were visibly, visibly uh, deep in the medicine. But I was still kind of wondering, okay, I, I had some mild effects and wasn't sure if that was what I was supposed to feel or not. But after two hours the the gentleman who's serving medicine 
asked everyone if they'd like a second dose. So, of course, I said, yes, I'll take a second dose. And I took a second shot glass of this very strong medicine. And about 15 minutes later, everything lit up. Um, I felt a very deep surge of medicine and... I started to see visions. I started to see visions of of my family, of my sisters, of my dad. Um, And the people who were playing the music, the the guy that brought me there was was chanting OM, and they had this instrument that was hitting that same tune, and this vibration was just coming through the air like, like a stream of light and colors just going straight into my into my body and at one point I just I realized like I realized I was I was very deep in the medicine I got up I realized I was going to vomit but as soon as I got up to vomit I realized that my motor skills had totally deteriorated it was dark at that point and I couldn't see anything and uh um, I went frantically searching for my bucket, but I, I couldn't find it. And I eventually ended up vomiting all over the floor and all over myself in, in that room. I won't, I won't go into the details on that. Um, and I also don't want to talk too much about the, the ceremony itself, but my point is it was a very powerful ceremony and and after i went through this episode of vomiting and getting cleaned up and just being totally overwhelmed i was totally overwhelmed by the medicine and just flattened basically um but as that kind of calmed down and they they helped me get to the bathroom and they cleaned up the mess that i made all over the floor and um eventually i i i cleaned myself up in the bathroom and got back to the ceremony space and um, then I started to do some healing work. And um, I guess I forgot to mention that, that a couple of weeks prior to this, uh, I was in Canada and uh, my dog died. So actually it was, kind of a, it was kind of a painful way for it to happen. Mm, I, I, I had just gotten a hernia surgery. So I had a hernia for the past couple of years, my belly button was like ripped open and the guts were popping out. And um, so I, I went, there was a really good hernia hospital in Toronto. I went there and had this hernia fixed. And so I'm in the hospital for a week on this hernia repair. And uh, my sister calls me up and she's crying and she says, damn, Molly's dying. And I had my computer there. So, so through video call, we use Skype. Um, at that time, uh, I watched uh, I watched my dog suffering there until the vet came and then and put a needle in her and put her to sleep and then took her away and put her in the freezer. And then once I got out of the hernia hospital a week later, uh, I went and and uh, you know we we buried Molly in the forest where I had always taken her uh, to uh, to you know all, for all those years. And, um, you know, I went out with my mom, we bought a tree and I built a casket for her. And, um, you know, we went down and, 
and uh, dug a hole and and put Molly in there. Put this put this kind of planter box on top that uh, that I built, um, and then planted a, a, a red maple tree on top of her. So um, that was you know that was still very fresh for me. And and in the ayahuasca ceremony, I was able to really you know cry and 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 just and and really you know come to terms with that and and all that that grief that i was experiencing from that um i also had a profound experience where i i I could see myself from a distance it would be like you looking at me right now and you know i didn't i didn't see hateful things i saw love i i i I saw forgiveness i looked at myself and i thought you know i just felt the sense of of acceptance and love and and forgiveness and kindness and and gentleness and you know just thinking like like I, i i saw it was not a perfect version of me it was my imperfect version it was all the things that i didn't like about myself it was all the stupid injuries that i'd gotten it was the mistakes that i'd made it was you know the way i looked that i didn't like and um and i felt the sense of love and forgiveness which had ne- which i'd never felt before so that was very powerful for me and changed the way that i i started to act toward myself uh, after that and, um, and, and started to mitigate the self-sabotage that I'd often allowed to happen. So that was one powerful aspect of the ceremony. I, I, I saw my dad, you know, we didn't have a very good relationship at that time because I was such a fuck up and because I felt that I wasn't living up to what my dad wanted of me. So in a way, I resented him because of the way I felt based on my own perception of the way he felt. But regardless, we didn't have a very honest relationship. And my dad was very anti-drugs. He grew up in the Reagan era and he was from a very straight edge family. My grandfather was very religious. My grandfather, my grandmother, very religious, never drank, never touched uh, tobacco, let alone marijuana or psychedelics of any kind. And those things would just concern them. They, they would just, you know, that was just a totally different world for them. So the fact that I was into that stuff through high school and through college and after college, it just, it pissed my dad off. And he, you know, just, he didn't like it. And there were some, a couple of times when I was a bit younger, he found drugs on me and, the fact that I was into that plus also did not have anything going on in my life to him was proof that drugs are bad. And nobody knew I was going to do this ceremony. I didn't tell anybody. But during this, during this experience that felt so healing for me, I saw my dad and I felt that, that he really could benefit from this medicine as well. And, um, yeah, I, I won't go into too much more detail on that ceremony, but it was very powerful, very healing ceremony in it. And it opened something up in me. It really showed me how strong and how powerful this medicine is. And it just made me want to keep going. And it wasn't so much just the experience itself, but 
you know, and, and fortunately I had a really strong experience because it was the only one. I, the next day I had to leave and travel back to Albuquerque, drop the car off, fly back up to Seattle and take the ferry back up to bank, uh, back up to, uh, Victoria so I could continue this training program and go to work. One of the things I got from that ceremony was, was some certainty around that job, but not certainty as in this was going to be my path. Certainty as in you have to do this for now, but it's not going to be your path, but you need to do it for now. So I, I got locked in there and I went and I did that program and I started working on the ocean, working on these fishing boats, going out and documenting the fishing activities that these commercial vessels were up to. And it was good. It was a good, it was an adventurous job. I, I traveled the coast of British Columbia, stayed in, they had port houses in the different fishing towns. So it was cool, stayed in Euclid, stayed in uh, Port Hardy, stayed in Victoria. Didn't make it to Prince Rupert, but some of them did. And um, yeah, it was, it was good and it was good money. And it was an interesting experience but I still felt called to the medicine. So six months after I started that job, I was just obsessed about continuing on the medicine path. And I ended up working out a deal with this Rob Velez guy, the founder and, and, and manager of Chimbre in Puerto Maldonado, that same center that I had tried to go to in the past where Dennis was hosting, but I didn't make it there because I got messed up in, in Cusco. So um, anyways, I, 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 I got in touch with Rob and, and they were advertising some volunteer positions and I applied for a volunteer writer position. So I submitted a few samples of writing I'd done in university or, and I also sent him the write-up that I did about that first ceremony I did. So one important fact there that, that I, I just forgot to mention is that after that first ceremony, the very next day, I wrote up a detailed uh, recap of the ceremony and I sent it to everybody in my contacts list, like work colleagues, parents, aunts, uncles, friends, travel buddies, everybody that was in my Hotmail contacts list at the time. And I was very explicit. I was very open and honest about what had just transpired, including the part of me seeing my dad and me, and me seeing that my dad could benefit from the medicine and everything like that. And that was not very well received. That was, uh, it was not a very common thing to do at the time. This was in 2010, right? August of 2010. And most of you guys are probably learning about ayahuasca in the last five years, within the last five years or so, right? Three to five years. It's kind of come up in the mainstream channels. It's come up on a lot of podcasts. It's been on Joe Rogan, Aubrey Marcus, et cetera. Tim Ferriss talks about it. There's been a lot of developments in the psychedelic science industry. But back then, it was, it was very underground. So when, when I got into it, when I sent that email up, it was shocking to a lot of people. It was shocking to my aunts and uncles. It was shocking to my dad. You know, he, he had already thought that I was a, a lost cause. So, you know, that, but what that did do was it, 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 it popped the pimple. It, it brought everything to a head. And 
from that moment on, we began a very honest relationship. But still, it took a while to get over that particular event because right after that event, you know, I was I was still just the same guy that was now doing drugs, doing more crazy psychedelic drugs. But then after I I I I sent this this write-up, this recap to Rob, he accepted me for a volunteer writer position, which involved me going to spend a month at Chimbre in Peru in February of 2011 and just documenting my my experiences. So that's what I did. I, I took a month off this fisheries job and I went down and spent a month living in the jungle doing a dieta, drinking ayahuasca and San Pedro with the shaman Mancaluto um, and learning more about the medicine, spending, you know, nights laying down in the jungle by myself under the influence of medicine, getting ideas, purging, really really breaking some some ground and and learning the medicine path and i came away with a whole bunch of ideas and inspiration one of those ideas was to build a center in brazil i i had had this fascination with brazil since i went there in 2006 as i explained in the previous solo cast and um I drew up some plans, I got some ideas, I started thinking about um, about uh, what I wanted to do. And I got back to the fisheries job and I was going out on some of the, the fishing boats again. And I found Tim Ferriss's book, The 4-Hour Workweek, in one of the bookstores in Port Hardy. So I took that book out on a fishing boat for two weeks and I just devoured that book. I was, you know, there's not much to do when you're floating on a tin can in the middle of the ocean um, during your downtime. So I spent, I spent uh, two weeks highlighting passages in the book, tagging the pages, underlining stuff, circling stuff, taking notes, and kind of connecting my idea of this new kind of intercultural communication center that was had medicine mixed in with some kind of touristic activities in the Brazilian Amazon. And those two things together inspired me to quit that fisheries job in, uh, I think, uh, about a year into it. I quit that job and I moved to Brazil. I went to Brazil with the intention of building a center. So I fly down to Manaus, Manaus, Brazil. is like this metropolis in the middle of the Amazon of 2 million people. Um, I, I, I went there. I, I got a, an English teaching job with an English school. I got an apartment in a very rough neighborhood where I was the only white guy for probably two kilometers radius. Rats in the ceilings, rats in the swimming pool, rats in the cupboards, no air conditioning, uncomfortable bed, not, not luxury at all. 
And uh, so I lived in Brazil for a bit. I, I applied for a Brazilian visa and I assumed that every Brazilian visa was for five years because the one I had gotten uh, beforehand when I went to uh, Brazil was for five years. But I had to get a new one for, for this trip. So I, I applied for the, the Brazilian visa and I got it and I didn't even look to see how many days it was. And when I go down to Brazil and I cross the border, the guy asked me how long I'm going to stay there. And I say, uh, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking forever. And I say like um, three months or something like that. And he looks at my visa and he says, you can only stay for 30 days. I'm like, what? I look at my visa and it's a 30-day visa, non-renewable. So that was the first kind of nail in that coffin. But anyways, I still tried. I, I stayed there and I... Um, went around looking for properties. I went out to this place. Uh, I can't remember what it was called, but uh, outside of Manaus, kind of a little touristic town with some freshwater river beaches and some jungle properties out there. And I kept uh, working the English teaching job, trying to save some money there and uh, spending time in Manaus. But the visa issue was was one big problem. I, I, I could renew it once or twice, I think, which I did. I ended up staying there about three months um, and had to pack that in. But another thing I realized throughout that process was that my idea to go and build this center was faulty because of a few different reasons. One, I didn't have any money to invest myself. This was going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Regardless of how good your idea is, you can't make it happen if you, unless you have money. Two, I had a terrible resume and a terrible econo- uh, academic record. As I've explained, I mean, everything, I, I just, I'd made so many bad decisions, jumping around from place to place, only planning six months ahead, not really keeping any steady career except for sales. And, and you know, my performance, while decent, was not excellent. Um, and three, I had no business experience. I had no leadership experience. So those three things combined with not having a visa to stay in Brazil, what could I do? So I, uh, I had to go back to Canada. Where else could I go but Walkerton, back to my parents' house? I go back to Canada. Um, I start working for my dad again. But while I was in Brazil, one thing I did was I started uh, working with the uh, Santo Daime and the Unial do Vegetal, or the UDV, these two Brazilian religions that work with ayahuasca every weekend or very regularly. Uh, First, I went out to experience the Santo Daime. And uh, it was a little odd for me because they they keep the lights on and they ask you to sing and dance. And... uh, and they, they make you dress up in funny ways and stand in funny ways. And, you know, it just wasn't, wasn't what I was accustomed to. I was accustomed to more of an introspective solo journey with the medicine, not really interacting with people with the lights on and stuff like that. So I felt that was kind of weird. And then I went out and started working with the UDV there, which to me was a little more chill and a little more, a little more um, 
aligned with what I was accustomed to. It was just, you know, you could sit down, you didn't have to dress funny, you didn't have to sing and dance. And um, so I was, during that time in Brazil, I was, I was working with these two, with the, the, the UDV mostly, right? So every weekend, every two weekends, I'd go out and do ceremonies with them in their tradition. I'd also uh, quit drinking alcohol during that trip. And, um, and I started blogging. Uh, so another book that I got on those fishing boats was called Making Ideas Happen by Scott Belsky. And one of the things that he suggests in that book to hold yourself accountable is to, is to start publicizing what you're doing. So start to document your objectives. And that way you hold yourself accountable because you don't want to fail in public. So I went down there and I started blogging about this trip. I learned how to blog from that, from that month I did in uh, Peru at, the, at Chimbre. I started a blog and I started publicizing my experiences there. And um, so I, uh, I started a blog called Dan and Manaus and I, and I documented, I sent it a weekly blog and I sent it to all my Hotmail contacts. And I did that for the, the few months that I was there. Um, so I showed a little bit of diligence there and, and, and the people in my circle, my aunts and uncles and, and my dad and everybody, they were starting to see a different side to this medicine. They're, they saw that I, I gave up alcohol. They saw that I was starting to think differently. They saw that I was taking initiative. They saw that I was being diligent and being regular. And, and, and because I was able to intellectually explain a lot of the ceremonial experiences and the way I was ex experiencing Manaus and, you know, I would share photos in the blogs and stuff like that and thoughts and contemplation. It started to change people's perception a little bit in my circle. So anyways, I, I go back to Canada. Um, I go back to Walkerton. It was in the fall of that year, I think in October. I start working for my dad again at the solar company. And, um, you know, obviously that was still not what I had intended to do, but fortunately I had that opportunity to do. And I spent another maybe six months in Walkerton uh, working for my dad in sales. And, you know, my objective was to still upgrade my education and still do something, you know, special uh, with my life. So, um, you know, I... My dad's been a very, very helpful guy in my life. I've got to give him a lot of credit for, for, for directing me in, in times where I needed direction. And, you know, I still wanted to upgrade my university. And my dad ended up finding a course called um, Intercultural and International Communication. It was a master's degree. It was at uh, a place called Royal Roads University in Victoria, BC. And it was a blended curriculum program. So I could still, it, it was designed for working professionals. So I could, I could still work while doing that. And um, so I, I, I applied and, and because uh, they, they offered a, what was called a flexible admissions process. And so even though I still only had that one year of university level courses, I had all of this travel experience. I had the language experiences. You know, I had learned Portuguese. I had learned Spanish, uh, you know, maybe like six out of 10, but still um, I could get through a conversation in both of those languages. And um, 
they, they asked me for a seven-page letter. So I, I wrote a seven-page letter weaving together all this life experience that I had in this application. And they asked for academic references and personal references and work references. So I was able to get some academic references from some of my profs uh, in uh, my professors in the in the the Okanagan College uh, where I did my university level courses, and I had some personal uh, character references and stuff and, and and work references as well. So I got in and um, and I went out to uh, move to Vancouver to live in Vancouver and start this program and do this program. It's a two year program. So then I spent the next. Uh, two years living in Vancouver, and I and I took a, a sales job, another sales job, selling ethnobotanicals. So I got into selling uh, ethnobotanicals like like kratom and salvia and some, a bunch of other plants, um, which which was okay. You know, it was it was a, it was a decent job by any measure, and um, and it it kept me there for a couple of years. I spent that time completing this master's degree, and I also. Um, started my my first company in 2011. Um, you know, because I, I was blogging and talking about my adventures and my experiences with the medicine, eventually people started asking me to take them to experience this. And so in 2011, I started uh, a company called Pulse Tours. And... Um, and um, I just started running small groups. And because I had all this experience, I was just like, okay, well, I'll create an itinerary and I'll write up a budget and I'll make a price and then I'll make some kind of promotional materials. And I'll, uh, I learned how to build a website from Tim Ferriss's book, The 4-Hour Work Week. And, you know, I kind of guerrilla styled everything and I was like the only guy doing everything, you know, a little... Uh, I was doing the email communications. I was writing the web copy. I was sending out emails. I was taking bookings. I was taking the money. And then I would go and run the trip and I would confirm all the reservations and meet the people and go with the people and make sure everybody was safe and having a good time and, and were educated about the medicine and stuff like that. Um, and so I, I did a trip, you know, once every six months or so for a couple of years while I was living in Vancouver, working sales and completing this master's degree. And then um, on one trip in uh, 2013, I, um, I had a group of 10 people that came from around the world. I did a little publicity on Reddit and got this really great group of people. On that group was Melissa Stangle, who some of you know, and uh, Tatiana Telegina, who, uh, who some of you also know. Um, actually, Tatiana reached out to me on Facebook and wanted to uh, help me out. Actually, I think we both just kind of wanted to date each other, but we called it uh, helping out um, with, the, uh, with the, the trip I was about to run. So anyways, on one of those trips... Uh, things were going good. I, you know, things were starting to pick up and then Tatiana came into the picture and I thought, you know what? I've been wanting to be an entrepreneur for a couple of years and I've, I've, I've been loving these medicine journeys. You know, every time I did one of these trips every six months, the results would be so magical and profound and powerful. The transformations that I would see in people, it was, it was so convincing and so gratifying. It would make me want to do another one. So then I'd get back and I'd plan another one and then try to promote it. 
and fill it up. And then in 2013, you know, Tatiana came into the picture and I decided I wanted to make this a full-time gig. So we, we, we put some effort into it to make it full-time. And in September of 2013, I quit that job that I had and focused on finishing my master's and building up Pulse Tours to a full-time gig. And Tatiana and I, eventually we got, we started running more regular retreats. We built out the website a little bit more. We got on the, the, the review websites like Aya Advisor. And uh, we started working with additional tour leaders who would do the same job that I was doing as a tour leader and facilitator. And uh, so that would allow me and Tatiana to focus more on the business rather than working in the business and, and, and growing out. Then in, in June of 2014, we came to a point where it became necessary for us to either do something different or build a retreat center because we were running into issues with bookings because the ayahuasca field was growing so quickly and a lot of people wanted to come and drink medicine. So all these different centers, like we were assembling groups and booking out space at other centers and then taking those people to those centers, taking our groups to those centers. And that got increasingly complicated as time went on. So uh, in 2014, we, we bit the bullet and I, I was already looking at a property in Peru. We started, we were running trips in Peru and Colombia in the Amazon around Iquitos, working with Shipibo healers at a center called Niwe Rao. And as part of those original journeys, I would take people out on uh, jungle expeditions to the Pacaya Samiria nature reserve uh, about four hours outside of Iquitos. And we would stay at this jungle lodge in a little village called Libertad. And so we were working with this jungle guide also, Victor. And as we got out to Libertad and, and, and we were kind of rolling around this idea of building a center out there. And I think in March of that year of 2014, I was uh, running a trip out there and I, I went out to the village and spoke with the village president and he took me to show me a property out in, uh, around Libertad that we were able to use, that he was going to gift to us, if provided we offered some, some work and some economic sustenance for the village. So uh, it was a big commitment and I was uncertain about it, but then we ran into an issue in uh, June of that year while I was running a trip. Tatiana and I were running a trip in Brazil for the World Cup uh, with, with a few guests. And we, we ran into a, a brick wall with one of our upcoming groups where the, the center who we had booked uh, was not able to take us and there was no other center able to take us. And so... You know, it was either a do or die scenario. And so I decided to pull the trigger on that and, 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 and make an effort to build the center that we were considering. But how would I fund it? Well, I had um, some revenue coming in from the bookings from, from, uh, from Pulse Tours. 
but also I was at a different point. So as I mentioned, the, the, the reasons I failed in Brazil were, aside from the visa, were that I didn't have any business management experience. I didn't have any money and I didn't have a, a good academic or employment record. So now in 2014, when I was considering to build this new center, I had just finished a master's degree. So my academic record was, was spot on. I had just spent the last couple of years, you know, doing a full-time job plus a master's degree plus building my new company. So I showed some diligence there. And, um, and I had already, you know, had an ongoing business. We had, we had reviews, we had revenues, we had the infrastructure set up, we had employees, and it was just starting to pick up steam. So that was able to attract a small investment of $20,000. Very small investment. But, you know, when you're just asking guys in Peru to go out and cut down a couple of trees and build some, some uh, wooden buildings you know, it didn't really cost that much. So I think the whole project cost about $50,000. And that came from a combination of funding from those different sources. I had a little bit of money left over from savings. Plus I was, I actually still had some student loans that I hadn't accessed yet that I was able to, to, to get to plus this $20,000 investment. So once we decided to bite the bullet, we went for it. And I think in July of 2014, I went down to uh, Peru. I, I made the designs myself and went out to the village and got the guys to work. And we just basically put 30 people on the task and crushed it for about six weeks until we had a basic functional center in September of that year. And we opened in September of 2014. So then that commenced a new journey of of running a center in in the middle of the amazon i lived in the middle of the amazon with tatiana the two of us were dating and we ran the center for a few years we had many great people come through we, it was it was right out in that place in the pakaya samaria reserve where we would take people to do jungle tours but at that place, we could do jungle tours and do ayahuasca right in the same go. So uh, we, we, uh, we hired a couple of healers. The, the lead healer was a guy named Wheeler who, who was working at Niwe Rao when we were taking people there. So we, we acquired him and brought him on and he led the charge there for, the, for those few years. And... Um, yeah, I mean, countless amazing experiences, countless amazing and beautiful memories from that place, countless amazing ceremonies and transformational uh, experiences. It was just, it was a real incredible, incredible phase of life. And um, yeah, you know, I just got a little bit tired of, of living in, in Iquitos, you know, for anyone who knows Iquitos, it's like the Amazon is, is this beautiful natural paradise. I mean, it's, it's, it's rugged, it's hard. There's a lot of mosquitoes and it's hot and it's sticky. And, you know, there's a lot of bugs of all different kinds and there's things that can kill you and stuff like that. But it's, it's very beautiful. Um, and it's, it's very powerful and very high energy place to live. But to get to Pakaya Samiria, you have to go through Iquitos. And that's one place that I just really, 
really do not like and, and grew to dislike uh, more and more as I spent time there and as the, you know, I, I had countless experiences of, of betrayal and sabotage and, and just low quality and frustrating experiences all across the board. And I just wanted to expand my horizons and I, and I made an attempt to go and start a, a new company in Austin, uh, Texas while I was still running that center and Tatiana would run that center. And I, and I went to Austin to start a new company in, in the Kratom uh, business. But, um, I quickly found out after about six months that, you know, I wanted to build, I wanted to grow as an entrepreneur. I wanted to do more things. I wanted to, to keep starting new projects. That's where I really feel alive. But I found it impossible to manage the center in, in the Amazon from a distance because I would frequently be called down to, to come deal with an emergency. And when, you know, when the Tomcat's away, the, uh, the kittens uh, come out to play. So there was, you know, some employees that would act really irresponsibly when I wasn't there. Um, and, um, and things started to get out of hand. So I, I quickly realized that I couldn't, do anything else as long as I had this, this center. And, uh, at the same time, there was starting some cracks starting to show amongst the teams. Like, uh, you know, there was uh, potentially some, some sabotage, some mutiny, some betrayal going on there. And, um, you know, I just thought I started to see some red flags and I thought, you know what, I should just get out of this while I can. And, um, and so, you know, the, the lead healer that was there had been talking to multiple people about opening up his own center and with our customers, you know, the people would come to do a ceremony and then he would ask them if they wanted to invest in, in him to go buy it, to build his own center. Um, and I figured the only way I could really stop that is to, is to either fire him and get a new healer in or um just sell them like if he really wanted to run his own center and someone else wanted to invest why not just buy the center that i built so i i sold uh found a guy one of the guys he was talking to we came to an agreement and 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 this gentleman bought uh a majority stake and took over managing control of the uh of the business and then i theoretically was free to do as i pleased while still being involved with, with the center. And Tatiana would continue on working and, um, and same with Melissa. Melissa uh, Stangle had started working, uh, working for me and Tatiana in 2015. So she'd been, been with us for maybe a, a year and a half or, or two years at that point. So this gentleman took over, um, became the managing partner. And over time, a few months, six months, the changes he wanted to make didn't resonate with the team. And the team looked to me for a solution. What can they do? What can we do? How can we nullify this trans transaction and take back the center for ourselves? And I was in a real dilemma because I felt like I had sold them out. I felt like I had sold out the center. I felt like I had um, 
done something wrong and something selfish and something bad. And it was frustrating to see them suffering. And so I, I wanted to do something. I wanted to fix the problem, but, but I didn't know what to do. And I was actually there with my dad moving my stuff out of Texas because I had, to, I had to sell that business in Texas as well. I couldn't manage the two things. And um, I was explaining this dilemma, you know, uh, this, the new guy had fired Tatiana. So she lost her job. She was no longer involved in the center that she helped me build. And, you know, it was just kind of heartbreaking. And um, I was just, I was talking to my dad about how can I nullify this transaction? Can I give this guy's money back? And, you know, how do I get out of this? And my dad says, do you actually really want to do that? Do you actually really want to nullify this transaction and then go back and start living in the jungle again? And I really didn't, to be honest with myself. I just did not. I did not want to go back to Iquito. Like, I couldn't bring myself to that decision to just go back and take on this again. And my dad said, why don't you build something in Costa Rica? Why don't you do something better in Costa Rica and, and bring the team with you? And at first I was humming and hawing because I'm thinking, oh my God, that's twice as complicated as, as doing business in Peru, trying to get everything up to Costa Rica. Is it legal? I don't know. Is it more expensive? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Just moving parts after moving parts and thinking, no, no, no way. There's, I can't do that. And I rolled it around for a bit and then my dad opened up his computer and spent about five minutes searching the internet and he found this incredible property and he showed me it. And I, I look at the property. As soon as I see this property, I'm thinking, oh, this could work. It was a private family retreat, beachfront that had mountains, that had a big forested property, 22 acres, uh, eight hectares, 8.5 hectares of, of forested property. And I always wanted a beachfront property and a mountain property and a jungle property. And this was like beachfront, jungle, and mountain all in one. So it caught my attention. And especially because one of the buildings was the, the, the kitchen and restaurant area was already shaped like a maloka. It was like a cone-shaped building that I'm, I was thinking, well, in the interim, we could almost do ceremonies right in there. So I started talking to the, you know, the, the people who were unhappy with the current management at, at, at Pulse Tours. And, um, and you know, the, the idea started to develop. And um, it took me still a, a couple of months to really decide to pull the trigger on it because I knew how much work it was going to be. But uh, so that that was in, I think, about May of 2017 when I was having these discussions with my dad in Texas. And over the next couple months, you know, w within a few weeks of that discussion, we traveled to Costa Rica, me and my dad uh, and my uncle, and, um, and looked at the property. And, I mean, it was the property. We got there, and it I could see it. I could see the vision. I could see the buildings. I could see the Maloka. I could see exactly how that property needed to be laid out. I could see it really impressing people. I could see it being the next thing. 
So we started negotiating with the seller and spent the next couple of months, made a few trips back and forth the next couple of months. I went to meet the municipality down in, in, uh, in Costa Rica where the center is located and, um, and uh, make sure that they were okay with us doing a project like this in their municipality, and they were. I made a big presentation in front of the, 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 the leaders of the municipality. And after deliberating for another couple of months, we settled on a deal and we pulled the trigger. And I flew down to Costa Rica on uh, November 1st of 2017 and I signed for the property on November 15th of 2017. So we got the property, started building the Maloka in December, and I, I lived there by myself for, um, I lived there by myself for about six months at what is now Soltara. Um, we spent, that time while I was on site running the construction project, I was, I was building uh, the, the new buildings. We had to upgrade the property. We had to build a whole bunch of new guest rooms and we had to build uh, uh, a new Maloka and we had to upgrade the restaurant and we built this really cool star deck and we had to build some staff lodgings and, and other stuff. But... Um, yeah, it was pretty rushed, and, and we, in the meantime, Melissa was working from a distance, building the website and writing all the web content and, and um, all that good stuff, building our brand out. And, um, yeah, we, uh, we hosted our first group at Soltara in June of 2018, so just a little over six months of construction which was very rushed. We had a lot of big buildings uh, to do, a lot of complicated construction, heavy construction. And uh, we opened in, in 2018. Um, I ended up selling the full uh, shares. The, before, before buying this property, I sold, I sold out completely to the gentleman who purchased the controlling stake in, in my first company. So, so he took over and um, a couple of people from that team came up to work with me here in, uh, in Costa Rica. And then from June, 2018, we just started rocking, you know, putting in the effort the first maybe year or year and a half, we very tight financially, barely keeping our heads above water, losing money most months. I raised, uh, for this new project, I raised uh, $2 million or something. So I struggled to get $20,000 for the first business I made. And that's because I had no experience and I had no track record. There was no proof in the pudding. It was just sloppy pudding but with this new project because i had already proven my ability to build one of these centers and make it successful and run it properly and build a team and 
get standing in the world and, and everything else, grow a mailing list and grow social media and all that good stuff. Uh, I was, I was able to raise money from a dozen different people or 15 different people. Some of them were family members that just 10 years ago would never have even considered investing in an ayahuasca project, but they had seen my progress over the years getting better and better and better, um, doing more diligent things and improving myself and, and building myself up since the moment, since that one day that I drank ayahuasca, it's just been a constant, a constant growth curve upward with a few hiccups, of course, but mostly just trending straight upward. And, um, so they invested and there were a bunch of customers, clients that had come to my previous center and liked what I did there. So they were willing to invest their money into this new place. So I was able to raise a lot more money for this new place and uh, got a mortgage from the, from the seller on to 50% of the property. So cut a deal and we got the property and, and um, we made it work. You know, we, we bootstrapped it for the first 12 months and it really took us until the end of 2019 to start making money. And as soon as we started making money, we spent a couple of months with decent, decent, uh, decent earnings that were starting to make me feel less stressed and, and, and good about, about where we were going. And then COVID hit. Adios. Um, yeah, COVID hit. We had to shut our doors in March. And, uh, you know, like so many other tourism businesses around the world, um, we spent the next seven months on shutdown with zero revenue. But we made it through. We cut costs. And fortunately, we had a couple of months before COVID of decent uh, earnings. So we had some money in the bank that we were able to use to keep the lights on and keep people fed and everything like that. And um, yeah, we made it through. And then we opened again on November 1st. And here we are. We're doing good. We're, uh, we're on top of the world right now. So now, in terms of where ayahuasca has brought me, it has been a crucial factor in my development. I don't know where I would be without ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is the basis for my life. It's the platform that I stand on. It's healed my relationships or it's, it's shown me what I need to do to heal my own relationships. It's proved to me my own strength, my own force of will, my own mental fortitude through, through so many challenging, profound ceremony experiences. I've, I've gotten to know the depths of my own mind and how far the limits of my will are. 
it's helped me dial into my health and to respect my body and, and my health and to care for my health and to care for my body. It's shown me that relationships are critical for me and I must preserve my relationships. My relationships are everything. I'm, I'm nothing without my relationships. It's given me vision. It's, it's, it's allowed me to see the right decision when I'm at a fork in the road on countless occasions. I have asked ayahuasca for clarity on countless occasions. And she's shown me which way to go. And ayahuasca has given me a purpose, something I can do, something I can pour my heart into to give back and to help other people find their path and to help other people heal and to provide a place to work for all these amazing people who, who work with me, the healers, the facilitators. You know, I've got my best buddy, uh, Jesse, down here in, in Costa Rica working with me, managing the kitchen, managing this podcast channel. And I really don't know where I would be if I had not decided to make that trip down from Victoria, that long pilgrimage down to Victoria just to have that one ceremony. I don't know honestly where I would be if I hadn't have done that. I don't know where I would be in life if I hadn't have gotten into the world of ayahuasca. I would certainly be in a much different place. But here I am in Costa Rica, very happy. I've got no complaints. I have, I've got an ideal lifestyle by any measure. And of course, yes, I, I have goals that I still have and I have things I want to do and I still want to grow and keep building new projects and keep challenging myself. But I can't complain with any aspect of my life right now. So, yes, thank you to ayahuasca. I have a lot of gratitude for, for this medicine and for the power of this medicine. And I just see it, I see it every week. I see people coming in every single week and having these profound transformational experiences themselves. And that gives me a lot of satisfaction. The work we do is highly satisfying. So who knows where this journey goes next, but the last 10 years of my life after ayahuasca have been astounding, astoundingly amazing and full of peak experiences and and challenging experiences, satisfying experiences. So what can I say? That's my story. That's my story. That's what got me here. Do you have your own ayahuasca story? If you do, feel free to 
reach out to me. You can get in touch with me on the website or on social media. My uh, Instagram channel is uh, Daniel C. Cleland. I, I check that pretty regularly. I'm on the other channels as well, but I don't check those as regularly. Contact form on my website, danielcleland.com. And uh, if there's anything I can do for you, if you're at a turning point in your life or looking for someone to have a conversation with, please don't hesitate to, uh, to reach out. If you are inspired by this story, please, uh, please do share. Please leave a review. Please, um, please like and subscribe where you can. Of course, you know, this is a new show and uh, the reviews mean a lot. The subscribes, the likes, the shares, they mean a lot. So if you feel called to do that, that'd be great. And of course, uh, it wouldn't be possible without Soltara Healing Center and, and the sponsorship of Soltara Healing Center, which you can find more out about by... Find more out about? That sounded really Canadian, didn't it? You can find out more about by checking out soltara.co or on social at Soltara Healing Center, or by sending an email to letgo at soltara.co, or by calling 1-800-397-1730. It's worth your time, I promise you. So anyways, thank you for sticking with me throughout this conversation. I really appreciate you. I appreciate your attention. I appreciate your time. And uh, wish you all the best. Wish you your own life-changing ayahuasca adventure and experience and journey. Thank you. The Daniel Cleland Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for the Daniel Cleland Podcast. We truly enjoy you sharing your time with us. If you enjoyed the episode as much as we enjoyed sharing it with you, please like the episode, review the podcast, subscribe. If you're not already subscribed, these likes and reviews and subscriptions are the lifeblood of our show. So free for you, super important for us. Like, subscribe, and review. Thank you so much. Of course, this podcast would not be possible without the continued amazing sponsorship of Soltara Healing Center in Costa Rica. If you feel called to work with plant medicines, ayahuasca, shamanismo, curanderismo, from Peru, from the Peruvian Amazons to Costa Rica, check out Soltara Healing Center at soltara.co or conveniently 1-800-397-1730 or look us up on social media at Soltara Healing Center. All kinds of great content nonstop coming out down the pike every day just for you. Thanks again so much for joining. I appreciate it beyond words and I look forward to doing many more of these episodes for you and connecting. If you want to reach out to me, 
There's a contact form on my website, danielcleveland.com. Feel free to hit me up. I read every email and try to respond to all of them. Thanks again. Much love to you, and I hope we get to catch up soon. All the best.